Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Point Church of Siberia. And <laughs> getting old, isn't it? Well, uh, hope is coming. I uh, saw a picture the other day of a car spring behind a corner of a brick building and it said something to the effect of spring is coming. It's just around the corner. And uh, so we are looking forward to that, at least I am. Uh, we are glad you are here with us today. I was reading uh, a article. Uh, it was written by a man uh, named Joseph Turlow. He's a professor, and uh, it was uh, printed in Yale University Press. And the title of this article is The Daily You, How the New Advertising Agents Industry is Defining Your Identity and Your Worth. And uh, we may or may not know that one of the fastest growing online businesses is the business of spying on you and me. If you are on the Internet, you are being spied upon, to put it very bluntly. Uh, this communications professor, Joseph Turlow, wrote this article. He said, we're at the start of a revolution in the ways marketers and media intrude and shape our lives. Every day, most if not all Americans who use the Internet are being quietly peeked at, poked, and tagged as they move through the online world. Uh, he goes on to say, in other words, every time you click on a link... Every time you fill out a form or visit a website, advertisers are collecting personal information about you, and then companies target ads to you based upon that information. Turlow says that in a recent online Valentine's Day card he sent to his wife contained trackers from 15 different companies. Even a simple online greeting card uh, purchase reveals a lot about who you are. Well, uh, the downside of all of this, obviously, is they want to sell you more stuff and more efficiently. Uh, but uh, the professor worries that this new technology is creating a society where our value is defined by profiles we don't even know are being built. For example, marketers already have developed a new jargon that divides people into two distinct categories, targets and waste. Targets and waste. Scary, isn't it? In the future, Turlow says, advertisers might play you in reputation silos that discriminate those pegged as down market. He says these words. I'm concerned about social discrimination in an everyday world where companies are deciding how I'm targeted, making up pictures about me. I'm getting different ads, different discounts, different maps of even where I might sit on an airplane based on what they think about me. It has a lot of ramifications of how we see ourselves and how we see other people. Well, in our current uh, culture and society, we all know that uh, we are all part of groups in fact, groupthink is a big thing societally and culturally. We have identity groups, we have political groups, and we tend to identify with the group we are mostly associated with. And the individual is quickly losing any sense of importance other than what can be marketed from them. And so the church is not immune to this, my beloved friends. Uh, and we go to the book of James, and if you take your copy of Scripture and turn to James chapter 2, we are continuing our journey through the book of James. Now, James, uh, he doesn't teach us a lot of doctrine. This is the application of the doctrine. James is addressing those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's addressing 
primarily Jewish believers who have been scattered. If we want to read about that dispersion, read Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and you see because of persecution, the early church in Jerusalem was scattered primarily into the eastern part of the then known world. And so there are these groups of Jewish believers in the Messiah in Jesus Christ, and James was primarily writing to them, although there is much that we learn about this. And he's writing in very practical ways about how to live out your Christian life, especially in times of diversity or adversity and difficulty and even persecution. And, uh, of course, we feel as Christians and as the evangelical church in North America a little bit back on our heels. Uh, And that's uh, when we read the media and read what's going on culturally and philosophically in our world, we feel like we're back on our heels a bit, like we're being attacked. And, of course, other places in the world, it's much more blatant, say mainland China and Iran and Syria and places where Christians are martyred or uh, really put down and uh, collared for their faith. And so James has been writing, and just a brief review in James chapter 1, he writes about the testings that we go through, this adversity of testings. Uh, We say testings come from the outside, and he talks about temptations coming from the inside. God does not tempt us. Satan tempts us, and we are tempted by our own flesh. Remember, our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so he has outlined these ways of dealing with temptations and with testing. And as believers in Jesus Christ, if you've been a believer very long, you recognize that life is full of testings and temptations. And uh, at the end of chapter 1, he gives us the antidote to that. And, of course, that is the Word of God, applying the Word of God, allowing God to apply His Word in our lives as we face those testings and temptations. And so James in chapter 2, we've come to chapter 2, verse 1. We'll look at verses 1 through 13 today. It's quite a large portion, and there's a lot in it, but we will hopefully hit the high points, and you'll get a flavor for what James is communicating here in a very practical way. James is increasingly specific and direct. Uh, He has held me down by the short hairs. Don's grandmother, to keep the little grandchildren in line, used to grab them by the short hairs of their neck and uh, would tell them, uh, this is for doing nothing. Wait till you do something, you know. And so uh, God, through James, his half-brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his half-brother James, is writing to us, and he's really holding us down by, by by the short hairs in this passage in verses 1 through 13. And even though I get to preach this passage, teach this passage, I'm with you. Uh, There are places it makes me uncomfortable because James is applying the word. It's one thing to think about our faith in a theoretical construct, but it's another thing to make it the reality of our day-to-day life. There is our position in Christ that Paul declares for us in the book of Romans, especially 5, 6, and 7, the chapters in Romans. We have this great position in Christ, but then this is our condition. We have a condition. We live in this world, in this this world where we are physical beings and our flesh is not redeemed yet. And so we deal with testings and temptations and difficulties and getting along with other people. And James is writing specifically about the sin of partiality. In fact, one translation, the the, the New English translation, the Net Bible, translates that word prejudice, and that is a much more forceful word. Partiality sounds kind of soft, but I like the word prejudice, even though the New American Standard translates it as partiality. In other words, we play favorites, and all through life we are trained to play favorites. I remember 
uh, when my, our girls were in middle school and high school, they would have their best friend, and then they're not their best friend. And, and, and there were favorites, you know, and there were people outside of their circle that they wouldn't associate with, and they would associate with them. And uh, we learned this very early on, don't we, that there are those we like to be with, those we want to get along with, and there are those we don't want to be around. And so James addresses this very clearly. Now, in this passage, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, there are four primary doctrinal reasons that he's applying this so strongly. And they are the deity of Jesus Christ, the grace of God, the word of God, and the judgment of God. And we are going to see in each one of these portions that what we do, how we live on our life, is really and should be based upon the doctrine we know, upon the doctrine that we have been implanted with. Remember, Paul, uh, James talks about the word being implanted in every believer. Now, you may not think you know much about the Bible, but if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know at least John 3.16. And there is word that is implanted in you. The Holy Spirit is faithful to give you more, and we are to receive this word. And so that's what James is concerned about, and he's going to uh, really get uh, in our face in this passage. Let me put it that way. Because we live in a day and age where it seems like prejudice and partiality is on the rise, like uh, I've not seen in a long time, and probably you have not seen. It seems that way. A lot of things tugging at our national psyche, if you will, and who's acceptable and who's not acceptable. And, of course, it affects us because we live in this culture. We live and we, in a society and a culture that affects us, and uh, we are in this world, but we should not be of this world. And so that is one of the challenges James is correcting here. In uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, this, in this section, James is explaining basically Jesus Christ's deity, and then he uses an illustration of how we are to live out in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is God. He was the God-man, came to save us. First of all, in verse 1, it says, My brethren, my brethren. By the way, I need to emphasize that uh, this is written to believers. That's why uh, James uses the term beloved brethren or brethren throughout this, I think, some 16 times in uh, this little letter. And so it is written to those who are already believers in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. Uh, and this word brethren, we, off, we see it as, a, as a, a masculine Word and yet it's in the plural. And when it's in the plural in the New Testament, it refers, it's not gender specific. It refers to males and females. So brothers and sisters, you could translate it. The Net Bible translates it that way because it smooths it out and it doesn't seem uh, like it's just written to men. But here it's written to brothers and sisters. And he says in verse 1 do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Notice that Jesus Christ is called glorious. It's interesting, the word glory in Scripture. Someday in, the, in my sermon planning, I've got a plan to preach on the whole issue of glory. One of the sermons will be entitled, How Much Does Glory Weigh? You know, And this is a whole another amazing part of how God has revealed himself. Because we tend to glorify things. We glorify people. We glorify our favorite politicians. We glorify those who entertain us. Uh, but yet, man has no intrinsic glory in that sense. Only God is glory, glorified. He is the only one who has intrinsic glory. And here it's telling us that Jesus Christ is called the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. 
uh, <clears throat> Jesus Christ had this glory, has this glory. It is not intrinsic in us. And so he's reminding them of the deity of Christ, of the fact that he is the only one with glory, and he is the one who has given us his glory. The only reason we have any standing in before God the Father is because of Jesus Christ, because of his righteousness, which is glorious, because, because it is perfect. He is perfect. He is without sin. We see here that Jesus did not respect Persons. If we were to go to Matthew twenty-two sixteen, there uh, even as enemies, the Pharisees said, "You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are." The Lord Jesus Christ did not look at the outward appearance. Of course, that is the human condition. We look and we judge by outward appearances because we cannot see the heart. Jesus Christ sees our heart. He sees every intimate detail of our lives. He is impressed. He is not impressed with riches, social standing, ethnicity. Uh, when you think of the story about the poor widow who gave her might at the temple in contrast to those who were throwing in great coins into the offering basket, her might, this little coin, less than a penny, was greater in his, uh, in his judgment. I was reading a story about uh, an event that occurred in the latter half of the 19th century, about 1884. There was a young man who passed away suddenly, and after his funeral, his parents, who were in deep grief, decided to establish a memorial for him. And with that in mind, they met with Charles Eliot. Well, Charles Eliot happened to be the president of Harvard University. And they went and got a meeting with him, and Eliot received them, uh, a rather unpretentious couple, uh, visually from you know everything he saw, and he asked what he could do for them, and they expressed their desire to fund a memorial uh, fund, uh, and Elliot impatiently said, perhaps you have in mind a scholarship, uh, and they were thinking of something more substantial than that, uh, the woman said. She said, perhaps we could fund a building, and Elliot brushed them aside, thinking that they weren't worth anything, and uh, said that idea is too expensive, and the couple departed. Well, the next year, Charles Eliot learned that this plain pair that he had judged so quickly in his office had gone elsewhere, and they had established a $26 million memorial named the Leland Stanford Junior University, better known to us today as Stanford University. And uh, so that was an example of judging people by their appearance in that sense. And so Jesus did not respect persons. He knows the heart. He knows all of our hearts. He says, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And then he goes in and he gives a hypothetical situation. He's very nonspecific, even though I believe that this account is really uh, foundational in a real event that he observed, that James observed. And he tells us, that in verses, second part of 1 into uh, verse 4, says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in the good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And so right away, he uses this hypothetical situation. We know it's hypothetical because he said, for if, in verse 2, for if a man comes in. And that is uh, uh, introducing this hypothetical situation. But it is really, he's getting penetrating into our lives about this idea of playing favorites. And he asked this rhetorical question, 
in the sense, are we not becoming in verse 4 with evil motives? And he says, we're putting ourselves basically in the place of God who is glorious. We don't have the glory. Jesus Christ is deity. And he's asking this rhetorical question, if this man comes in. He says the rich, and we have to understand this in a Jewish context. Remember, James is writing to Jewish people, Jewish believers, and it's the earliest book of the New Testament. And so he's writing with great Jewish flavor because he's addressing Jewish people. And when he talks about sitting at the footstool or having the rich man sit over here and the poor man stand or sit over there, he's referring to a gathering. In fact, the word that's assembly there is synagogue, even though it probably wasn't a formal synagogue, but it was an assembly of believers, probably meeting in private homes in a room dedicated to the meeting together. And they would basically recline around a low table with their feet pointing out, and there would be pillows that their feet would rest upon. And what they're saying to the rich man is, come sit down on my pillow, come sit with us, recline with us, but the poor man, you go stand over by the wall, or you sit at my feet back against away from us here. And so it was a place of honor. And so in a Jewish mindset, one who joined in there was honored, this rich man in this hypothetical situation, and the poor man was relegated to a place of dishonor. And uh, so Jesus Christ's deity militates against that. And he says, you have made distinctions, verse uh, 4, and become judges with evil motives. God judges us, which we will see later and we'll talk about, uh, but here is a judge with evil motives, and we don't want to be in that position. The second doctrine we see, first of all, Christ's deity in verses 5 through 7 is God's grace. Look at 5 through 7 again with me. He says, listen, and that word is an indicator, a structure indicator that, uh, here, let me get your attention. Come on, pay attention. Listen to this. This is important. In fact, it's an imperative form verb, which is a command. James is not mincing any words. He wants his listeners, his readers to listen and to pay attention. And so listen, my dear brothers. Again, brothers and sisters, he went on to explain why this preferential treatment, this judgment, was wrong. He made this point through four questions in these verses in 5 through 7. And look at the questions here in 5 through 7. He said, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God, these are questions, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Question mark. But you have dishonored the poor man. It is not the rich. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Question mark. And personally drag you into court? Question mark. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? Question mark. And of course, he's talking in general about not believers who happen to have more materially than unbelievers, but about uh, this, these, uh, in a hypothetical sense, of those who would persecute the church. And so his grace is important. He asked the first question, uh, has not God chosen those who appear poor materially but are rich spiritually to inherit his promised kingdom? Uh, that there, there's a distinction to be made here. First of all, we need to understand that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the evangelical church around the world, that the weight of that church, the population weight, has moved continually westward over the last 2,000 years. Of course, it started in Jerusalem, went to Rome, and then went, you know, for many years it was in Europe, Great Britain, came to North America, and now it is moving south and west. The primary 
population of Christians in the world is south of the equator and also west of North America. So Asia is an amazing place with many, many believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. South America, Africa, the bulk of people, when you think of their material uh, blessings, uh, there are many, many poor people. Again, I have been told many times that we in North America, the poorest of us, are still in the top 10% of the world's wealth. And plus, we're rather small. And so we need to recognize that God has created this church and has attracted people who have less than most of us have unto his cause. And it talks about here, heirs of the kingdom, heirs of the kingdom. We need, we need to probably spend a whole series of messages on what this means. Uh, we need to remember that all people who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are assured of going to heaven. They have the security of their salvation. But not all will be heirs of the kingdom. This is about rewards, which we can expand upon as we live out our lives on this earth. And that's what James is concerned about, is that we live in such a way that it brings honor and glory to God, and he will reward us. There will be reigning with Christ in heaven, in the kingdom, as Jesus Christ reigns in Jerusalem, literally, in the thousand-year kingdom, which is yet future. And Jesus Christ will have some who are heirs with him. Not every Christian will be an heir because there are those who have not lived out their life in faithfulness. Uh, You know that uh, passage, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I am convinced that not every believer will hear that when they get to heaven because not every believer has been a good uh, model of what it means to be a Christian. We think of the Corinthian believers. There's a biblical example of those who uh, were involved in much sin, and Paul was correcting them in the book of Corinthians. And if they did not turn and repent of that, They will not be heirs of the kingdom. They will not reign with Christ. Even though they will be there with him, they will be in heaven. Do not misunderstand me on that. And so God's grace, he chose them. That's that word election, electos. And go to Ephesians chapter 1, and we see that God in his infinite foreknowledge, in his perfection, he has elect some to Christ-likeness, and we call us believers. That's his desire for us, and he's chosen them who are rich spiritually for those who love Christ. And that's the question. Do you love Jesus? Do you love what God has done in your life, how he's changed you and brought you up and his faithfulness? It's good to wrestle with that thing. The second question is, are not the rich the ones who consistently are guilty of oppression, extortion, slander uh, here? And I think of uh, many times we hear people who are well-off criticize Christians. In fact, it seems like it's more and more popular. And are they not dragging you into court is the third question. The fourth question is, are they not the ones who slander Jesus's noble name? Uh, believers belong to Christ, not to rich exploiters. And uh, so probably these Jewish believers scattered throughout the, the then known world were being uh, slandered, blasphemed, uh, as, as Jews are in anti-Semitism all through the ages. And But these believers were to stand firm and recognize that they should not fall into this trap of preferential treatment. And so G- James's readers would have to agree with those contentions, with those questions, and to recognize that insulting the poor and favoring the rich was totally wrong and totally unreasonable. 
God also, in his grace, ignores ethnic differences. The difference between the New Testament Israel and, or the Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church is the fact that in Old Testament Israel, they were God's chosen people. They still are, by the way, Romans chapter 11. Uh, But they were located to a place, Israel. They were an ethnic community which were to shine the light of God to the neighboring nations. Of course, they failed in that time and time again. Uh, But God used Israel. He will continue to use Israel in the future. Uh, But in the New Testament church, we are not ethnically pure, if you will, because the church is all over the world. It's trans-ethnic. It's transnational. There's all sorts of people who belong to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, God is working in and through the whole world, and the church is... uh, all sorts of ethnic groups. So God ignores ethnic differences. In fact, uh, remember back in Acts chapter 10, Peter was called in a vision to go to Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion. And, of course, Peter, being an observant Jew, knew that he was not supposed to fellowship or do anything or even eat with Gentiles, but he went. And after it was exposed to him, God reopened his eyes to the truth that there was a new day and in the book of Acts. And now the church was not just a Jewish church, it was going to be Gentile church also. And in Acts, Peter says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality or prejudice, if you will. So God ignores ethnic differences. He also ignores social differences, social standing. Uh, we tend to put a lot of credence on social standing. Uh, it was interesting, I uh, did a seminar years ago on the difference between urban values and agrarian values. And some of you are more urban, some of you are more agrarian, having grown up farming or bean farms. And uh, one of the things that this presenter pointed out uh, was the fact that in the city, how do you show people that you've made it societally, you know, in in society status? Well, you drive a fancy car and you live in a big house. That's the only way you can show people because you go to the office and you push paper around, you know, trade stocks or whatever it is, and the only way you can show it is by having a fancy car and a fancy house. Whereas in an agrarian system, the way you show that you've made it is uh, you have nice straight rows of your crops and, uh, you know, the new equipment, and so there's this societal element value system that changes depending on where you're at. And so we looked at Christ's deity, Christ's grace, or God's grace. And in verses 8 through 11, God's word is the doctrine here. D.L. Moody once said that every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. Every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. And I think he got that from James. Because James wants us to live out our faith every day. And he tells us in verse 8, look at verse 8 through 11. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. God's word is the royal law. Uh, What does it mean by the royal law? Well, it's given to us by a king. Now, we in 21st century North America think of the laws as restrictive, whereas God presents law as one that is freeing. And I think about that when I drive down a mountain highway with guardrails. If I really wanted to be free of the rules and the laws, I wouldn't want any guardrails. And I would be free to fly off at the corner down into the canyon. But I am thankful that there are laws there that keep me free to go down to my destination, to keep going safely and securely. 
And so uh, he calls the royal law. It was given by a king. God the Father gave it to us in the law. God the Son reaffirmed it to his disciples. And why is it called the royal law? It's because it's love your neighbor as yourself. Remember Jesus summarized all the Old Testament law and love God and love your neighbor. And he did that. And he trans- he, that's a summation of all Old Testament law. God the Spirit fills our hearts with God's love and expects us to share it with others. Romans 5.5. 5. True believers are taught to uh, <clears throat> taught by God to love one another. First Thessalonians four nine, and love thy neighbor is a royal law for a second reason. It rules all law. It rules all things. And what God wants us to do, love is the fulfillment of the law. In Romans thirteen ten, there would no, be no need in our own society for thousands of complex laws if we truly did love one another, wouldn't it? It'd be quite the difference. And so, in, in verses 10 through 11, God's word is absolute. Look at verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors because we're violating that loving one another. Verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. I think you've all heard it. Somebody says, well, I'm not such a bad person. I've never murdered anybody or committed adultery. Uh, that's James's point here is that one little iota of the law, and these Jewish people who were well-versed in the Old Testament law and the Decalogue, uh, they would understand what he was saying. In fact, Paul reiterates this later in the book of Romans when he writes the book of Romans is the fact that if you miss on one part of the law, you break all of them. Uh, the other day, I had a hard-boiled egg, and I noticed that I cracked the shell, and I just didn't crack one little part of it. It just cracked all the way around. And that's the idea of the law. You, cr- you break one little part, you break all of it. And that's James's point, is there's no getting out from under the royal law of love, loving one another, no partiality. And so God's word comes into it, Christ's deity, God's grace, God's word. And finally, in verses 12 through 13, God's judgment, God's judgment. We're not very comfortable talking about God's judgment. I, don't, I was trying to think if I, we sing any songs or have ever sang any hymns about God being a judging God. No, it's always about his love, his care, his mercy, his grace. And that's great. It's great to celebrate those things and worship him in those. But we dare not forget God's judgment. Now, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is only one judgment left for you, one judgment left for me. In fact, I was a little disconcerted when you hear nationally known religious figures, like when the hurricane hit New Orleans, uh, it said it was God's judgment upon that city and upon sin. Well, it's funny, that hurricane, was it Katrina, I think? Uh, It missed the French Quarter, and it hit a bunch of churches. And uh, he must have had a very bad aim. And uh, plus, many believers suffered through Katrina. Many, many believers and churches suffered in that. And so I am hesitant. I want to go with uh, the judgments that are outlined for us in Scripture and what God says about judgment in Scripture, not what some national religious figure says that he believes God is judging here. But remember that uh, Jesus in John 5, 24 said this. By the way, if you struggle with your assurance of your salvation, if you are a believer in, in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, 
you need to have this verse if you struggle with your assurance. You need to have it and tape it to your eyelids inside so you can read it even while you sleep. Uh, Jesus said there, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, present tense, by the way, and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. What a wonderful verse. If you heard his word, believed in him, you have eternal life, present tense, and you have not come into judgment. You will not be judged. Your salvation is not judged. You have passed out of death into life, and we are living beings in Jesus Christ. Jesus said that. Paul in Romans 8, 1 said, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And so we can live without condemnation in that sense. And yet, uh, Paul warns us in Romans, Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians that the judgment that is left for believers is popularly called the Bema judgment seat where our works will be judged, not our salvation. But how we live out our life will be judged. Romans uh, 14, 10 through 13, Paul writes, But why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So that each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, Therefore we should have also as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, speaking of Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Page back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 13. Here we find uh, this beam of judgment seat. Oh, here we go. Uh, in Greek, the bema, that was a judgment seat in uh, the agora, or the marketplace of Greek towns. In the, we call it the town square. And there were certain times uh, during the week and when it was needed that uh, the one in charge of that city uh, would sit in judgment and people would bring their disputes and problems to him and he would judge over that. It was called the bema, and that's the word that's used here in chapter 3. And it talks about this future judgment of our works, not our salvation. Be very clear about that. Verse 10 of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. There's the rewards there at the beam of judgment seat of our works. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. I heard a great message in Chicago one time by Dr. Earl Rodmacher, who uh, he, he preached in that passage, and he said, I used to entitle this sermon, Bikini Believers at the Bema. Uh, 
But then he said he changed it to naked believers at the Bema because everything is burned up and they just have a whiff of smoke about them. Uh, It doesn't mean you lose your salvation. It's not about our salvation, our eternal well-being, but it's about our works being judged in this life and about the rewards we will receive at this Bema judgment seat. And we need to keep that in mind. And James is telling us here that God is judging us. How is he going to judge us? Look at uh, verse 12. Look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Our words will be judged. Our words will be judged. The words spoken by the, the, the people in ch- earlier in this chapter, when you sit here and you go stand over there, you get over there, uh, they said it almost flippantly in a partiality or prejudicial way. We may say to people, it depends on how we say it, Careless words will be judged, Matthew 12, 36. The words we speak from the heart, so God judges the words. He is examining our hearts, Matthew 12. Jesus emphasized caution when speaking in some of his warnings on the Sermon of the Mount uh, in Matthew chapter 5. So our words will be judged at that time. Words are important. In fact, James is going to spend quite a bit of time about how we communicate and about the tongue. If you're familiar with James, we will see that. Secondly, our works will be judged. Uh, It's true that God does not remember, excuse me, it is true that God remembers our sins against us no more, Jeremiah 31, 34, but our sins affect our character and our works. We cannot sin lightly and serve faithfully, one author said. God forgives sins when we confess them to him, but he will not change the consequences in that sense. So our words, our works, and our attitudes will be judged. And he talks about that in verse 13. For judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over over judgment. And uh, mercy is is, uh, not getting what we deserve is one quick definition of that. Whereas grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And uh, so we are to be a merciful people. We are uh, to recognize that mercy and justice both come from God. In his perfection, they are not competitors, but they come from God. Where God finds repentance and faith, he is able to show mercy. Where he finds rebellion and unbelief, he must administer justice. Remember the five occurrences of the word save in the book of James. Four of those occurrences refer to not eternal salvation, but temporal rescue or physical rescue. Because God judges sin. And we saw in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11 where in the early church some of the people were so blatant in their sin that it said many of them sleep, which is an acronym or a a synonym for physical death that God took them home. And so to remember this, the heart of the sinner determines the treatment he gets. And we see that in uh, Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 18 uh, about how fellow servants treat one another. So our belief should control our behavior towards others. Uh, We think of uh, the Good Samaritan. Remember, there was this uh, guy who was beaten up by robbers laying on the road, and many walked by him, even the religious leaders, and yet the Samaritan, who was an outcast, who was an ethnic minority and uh, untouchable by Jewish standards, came and ministered to the man and helped him. And that's the picture here in this this section of of James, is that we should not be prejudiced prejudicial, partial in our treatment of other people. Now, that's a challenge, especially in our day and age. 
uh, with the immigration issue. We were talking about that is yesterday, and uh, a friend of mine and I were talking about it, and I said, boy, if we could figure out how to figure out the immigration problem in our country, uh, you know, we could retire and never work another day in our lives because it is an ongoing issue. And yet for us as believers, how do we deal with that? How do we uh, portray it? How do we communicate about that? One of the tests of the reality of our faith is how we treat other people. And can we pass the test? James challenges us to put our faith to work rather than working to prove our faith. In the middle of the third century, there was a Christian leader named Lawrence who served as a deacon in the Church of Rome. And according to tradition and to the stories that come to us from that era, Lawrence was in charge not only of the holy things of the church, the communion chalices and the candlesticks and the treasury, uh, it would be what we would call the benevolent fund or the mercy fund. He was in charge of all that. And in Lawrence's day, public opinion had turned against the followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, even the government was persecuting the followers of Christ. And one day, one of the government officials of the city asked Lawrence to gather up and give him all the wealth of the church. And Lawrence sent back a message and said, I do not deny that our church is rich and that no one in the world is richer, not even the emperor. I will bring forth all of the precious things that belong to Christ, if only you will give me a little time to gather everything together. The government official agreed and dreamed of what he could do with all the money, the gold, and the silver. For three days, Lawrence ran about the city. He collected the church's treasures. But they were not the sort of treasures the greedy government official was dreaming of. Instead, Lawrence walked through the alleys and the squares of Rome and gathered the church's real treasure. It's poor, it's disabled, the blind, the homeless, the lepers. The people he gathered into the church included a man that didn't have any eyes in his sockets, a disabled man with a broken knee, a one-legged man, a person with one leg shorter than the other, and a woman who was blind and could not work, and others with grave infirmities. He wrote down their names and lined them up at the entrance of the church, and only then did he call for the government official and brought him to the church. These are the treasures of the church of Jesus Christ, Lawrence declared to him as he presented this ragged crowd to the astonished man. Their bodies may not be beautiful, but within these vessels of clay, they bear all the treasures of divine grace, the image of God in every human being. Heavenly Father, we pray today that we would not be a people who are prejudicial in our treatment of others or preferential in that sense, but Lord, we would look to you, the author and finisher of faith, that you would pry out those areas of prejudice that each one of us probably carries with us. And Lord, that uh, whether it's from our background, from our training, from our exposure to other people, Lord, we pray that you would unroot those things and that we would recognize that truly your royal law of love is what should be supreme and that you would use us mightily in our community in our homes, perhaps, in our uh, schools and workplaces and around the world, that we would be a people who represent you worthily and that you are a mighty God in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.